welcome back everyone to the, this podcast series i'm maithili and thank you for joining me um in one of the final podcasts in the series i am reiterating what the intent of the podcast is this series of podcasts are meant to inform the hindu mind of the deep colonial training it has underwent of course we are not aware of that deep colonial training that is why hindus themselves are the number one apologists for their own genocides rapes systematic economic oppression and several other crimes against themselves once this awareness comes it is the duty of each and every one of us to search for ways in which we can know ourselves better that is the crux of sanatan dharma self realization to travel deep into what constitutes the self not only through spoken or written word or gyan given by someone else but by experience this tradition is not a tradition of preachers and prophets rather it is a tradition of experiences who later turn into teachers and each of us are free to have a pick we should feel free to explore the literature the lifestyles of sampradayas that resonate with us the most for the sake of this podcast i'm going to introduce a term called negationism negationism is simply stands for denial of something that has definitely happened this is the great legacy of indian history writing that has been hidden from us and now it is up to us to explore this chapter in his book titled negationism in india conrad uh, elst quite literally drives this point home by referring to the trend of history rewriting in india he writes i'm quoting in 1982 the national council of uh, educational research and training that is ncert issued a directive for the rewriting of school books end quote this was a version of history to be rewritten by marxist quote unquote intellectuals like romila thapar and irfan habib secondly the directive said uh, quote characterization of the medieval period as a time of conflict between hindus and muslims is forbidden end quote this is our national policy this is the official intent of the indian state and as we discussed last time history writing is heavily heavily dependent on the intent of the writer now think about it if the idea behind any kind of history writing is not to show the conflicts that actually happened between hindus and muslims whose sentiments is it designed to protect romila thapar is one of the historians who give public lectures who gives public lectures and bhagwan knows what she, she teaches in her classrooms saying that the hindu identity didn't exist before 18th century and that it was a british or a colonial invention now these were the great intellectual voices during ram janmabhoomi case now uh, if you would like to know more about this kind of historiography because it is a uh, entire field in itself i encourage you to check out this uh, uh, talk uh, by mr ruchir sharma 
um, it's on YouTube titled New Colonial Mentalities in the Writing of Indian History. Uh, and he discusses this Marxist historiography and what goes into writing this kind of uh, uh, history, this kind of narrative in detail. So I do encourage you to check out that um, particular talk. The evidence of an existing structure of mandir will not be enough to change the mind of the so-called intellectuals who have been dedicated to the craft of history rewriting. This is the point Elst makes in his book, I quote, Since about 1920, an effort has been going on in India to rewrite history and to deny the millennium-long conflict between Muslims and Hindus. The facts don't matter in front of ideological conviction. As Arun Shori says, that every line that the communists say streams from the grand theory. The, uh, the grand theory is that of exploitation. This is because the theory abiders are convinced of the morality of their position. They are convinced that they are fighting for the oppressed. That is why any kind of counter evidence to the grand theory of exploitation will be met with accusations and slander. A common example of the accusation would be being privileged just because one holds a particular perspective. This is an extension of intersectionality of course. As discussed, privilege in the world of intersectionality is a measurable good apparently due to which you are not entitled to an opinion. The people who decided on painting a picture of Hindu-Muslim unity by deliberately covering up historical facts were convinced of a similar morality. They thought they were acting for the good or for the greater good of, uh, of a nation uh, which they assumed to be gullible, especially they assumed Hindus to be gullible. These people uh, are... Uh, you know, history writers and our constitution makers were educated in the secularizing traditions of Europe, which as we discussed last time is a very Semitic tradition, very Abrahamic tradition. More importantly, they placed themselves above the average Indian crowd, which they saw in the clutches of colonialism. You guessed it right. They mentally identified more with their Cambridge and Oxford colleagues and classmates. These people were inspired by the ideals of liberty, equality, fraternity. So, uh, please do check out my previous podcasts to receive more insight on this if you haven't already. Now, I do not mean to say that the people active in parliamentary politics during the pre-independence era consciously chose to look at non-whites as the inferior race. In fact, some of them, uh, so, some of them serve as examples of quite the opposite. The likes of Annie Besant and Saroji Naidu were quite the lovers of the country. But let us look at the case of uh, Raja Ram Mohan Roy to actually understand what was going on in the minds of, uh, well, uh, twice colonized Indians. Dating back, Raja Ram Mohan Roy serves as a right example for this colonial phenomena. At this point of time, Indian scholarship and civilization at large was so crushed that our only way to express ourselves was through translation. Let me further explain what I mean by this.
this is not translation just in the lit literal sense of uh, translating uh, one text say vedas or upanishads into another language that is english this uh, uh, translation refers to the translations of sensibilities because the indic sensibility greatly differs from the colonial sen sensibility or the invading sensibilities as we have seen in previous podcasts uh, that uh, there's a clear distinction between uh, the abrahamic approach to the world and the indic approach to the world so when we are translating our own literature say vedas or upanishads or puranas into uh, a foreign sensibility i'm going to use that word it is the translation that comes with the handicap of over explaining your ideas to an alien world view you see the great thinkers even the great hindu thinkers like uh, raja ramohan roy or uh, ishwar chandra vidyasagar of the british era had to translate their ideas in order to prove to the british europeans that we are not wild savages waiting to be civilized by their bible or their guns in fact the main component of their war was proving to the invading race that we too had a civilization that preceded them and that india doesn't need the bible and the european governance systems to civilize us i know this is a pretty tough battle to fight and let us remember that this had been a civilization already gasping for breath due to continuous invading forces yet there was never a chance to either speak truth to power or convey the suffering in direct results in indirect terms we always had to negotiate which made us strong in the survival game so much of our, of our effort has gone into how uh, how can our indigenous society fit into the quote unquote secular fold of european enlightenment now coming back to people who decisively rewrote indian history well some of them did perform the act with the intention of averting the trouble of uh, communal communal tensions between uh, dharmics and muslims and creating a secular united india in which hindus and muslims would peacefully coexist for this they had to essentially ignore and whitewash the warmongering nature of islam that openly declares wars on infidels slash kafirs they had to paint hindu muslim unity encounters with rosy colors when in reality they were the most bloody encounters filled with tales of horror well they expected the indian population to be gullible and god they were not wrong yet the history presents us with an opportunity again to revisit our past look into the intricacies of what led us here where we are definitely in midst in midst of civilizational war and most hindus aren't even realizing this we have lost one third of our sacred territory to a warmongering race during partition and this warmongering race doesn't ever ever shy away from asking for more rights and more rights and more rights 
on the piles of burning Hindus. As a result, we have we now have war mongering neighbors. Kashmir was Islamicized in 1990 with Kashmiri Hindu genocide. Bengal and Kerala stand similarly as we witness the changing demographics. Do we expect the barbarians multiplying from within to civilize? Or do we act on the situation before it gets out of the hand? I will leave the choice up to you. Thank you for listening and tuning in. Until next time, thank you. Jai Siyaram.